Originally published in Harper's Magazine, Don DeLillo's classic baseball novella, Pathco at the Wall, will be read and performed October 3rd at the 92nd Street Y. To reserve your tickets and learn more of this classic sports writing and the celebrated actors involved, visit 92y.org. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Obsessive fans of television used to be derisively called couch potatoes. Now, there are ads for dating apps that promise you can meet someone who you can binge watch your favorite shows with. In the October issue, Adam Wilson dissects the concept of a golden age of television, which, as he argues, was more of a marketing revolution than a serious reinvention of the medium. I spoke with Wilson about the promise and the frequently failed delivery of prestige TV, as well as what the need for prestige signals about our culture at large. As someone who comes from a film background, I definitely agree that pointing out that the golden age of TV or prestige TV is really more of a marketing term than an actual revolution in anything. But to just to play devil's advocate for a second, isn't this inevitably part of, you know, experimentation that will allow the medium to grow and the art form to grow? Because Francois Truffaut, who you mentioned in your piece, instead of Jean-Luc Coudard, maybe, uh, you know, he had like 10 years. The, 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 the French New Wave had a long time to experiment and get things right. And things just get run into the ground really fast now. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit to unpack, and I feel like you just said a lot <laughs> there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, part of what I was talking about is not just sort of the golden age itself being a marketing term, but also the idea that that marketing itself is one of like the big triumphs of the moment when we're looking back at it, and particularly sort of the way HBO was able to market themselves. You know, I, I, I agree. I think TV changed enormously, and I think, you know, a lot of really interesting things emerged and continue to. I guess more what I was saying is that I think part of what allowed that to happen was this kind of, you know, in some ways ingenious way that they figured out how to market this different type of TV, which which itself emerged from like these very specific economic circumstances and market circumstances and, you know, various other circumstances that if you kind of track it, I think the idea that suddenly sort of these artists just arrived and changed everything is 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 sort of a myth that I was trying to to bust a little bit, I guess. Um, but I mean, what I hope comes across in the piece is that, you know, I wrote this as a person who, who quite likes TV and watches and has watched an incredible amount of it and and enjoyed it. and and i I think one of the things sometimes, you know, that has sort of, I don't know, has become lost in the culture or, or we've become a kind of culture of binaries where you have to either like something or hate it, where you can't, where you can't like things with reservations or you, or you can't like things, but also, you know, be critical of them. And, and so my hope for the piece was to sort of, you know, be quite even handed in saying that, yeah, a lot of really amazing stuff has, has come out or, or some, maybe, you know, some and some really other interesting things, but also 
you know, we have to just we have to think carefully about them and, yeah. and ask ask certain questions. Yeah, you should always be suspicious of things that you like. Yeah. It's 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 yeah. unhealthy to not do that. I mean, I do feel like that does come across, but it is that intersection of marketing and repetition, the repetition of a formula, that there are certain things that are not only repeated in the marketing of these particular shows, but in what they are about, what sort of things that they're, traditions they are drawing from, whether you want to say it's like, okay, Angry Man plus uh, Nighttime Soap, like whatever you want to call it, you see it in the numbers of scripted TV shows, which before this kind of seemed like they were on the way out because of stuff like reality TV. And now this is a way to come back and be like, no, it's really narrative. Nothing like narrative. Don't yeah. don't just watch Real Housewives of Orange County, please. Yeah. And as I talk a bit about it in the piece, I think a, a part of it, I mean, it had to do with a lot of the technology that was coming out, but also I think the way the film industry was changing. Yes. And the way the film industry went from being a place, particularly like in the 90s, where there was this really exciting kind of American independent film movement to a place where that, you know, and independent film movement, but also like a movement, a studio film movement, where there were a lot of things being made in the kind of mid-budget range that filled a certain gap that that I think slowly began to to disappear. Absolutely. I mean, like, I saw Mulholland Drive at a multiplex in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It was a very different time. And now, because Hollywood has not just kind of embraced nerd, quote unquote nerd culture, you know, malign, just weird little nerd culture. It's like, no, these are the only movies getting made now. The largest entertainment company that has ever existed in the history of the world has control of all these different properties and they just announced a new streaming service so like they they can do whatever they want and you're totally right when you say the middle ground has been completely hollowed out and somebody like I don't know James Gray in the 70s or even 20 years ago he would have been somebody who could have been like really picked up integrated into the Hollywood system and now it's just like he's kind of existing thanks to the benevolence of Amazon right. or these other these other companies that are willing to fund what he makes but it's nowhere near what it could be and TV is a way to fulfill that but with certain drawbacks right yeah so I wanted to I wanted to quote something you had written, which I thought was really uh, interesting. The false equivalence was self-serving, a justification for TV criticism as a valid profession. It was vindicating for viewers too the arduous task of reading novels being no longer requisite for entry into the elite society of people who read novels. It didn't matter that the novelists writing for The Wire were Dennis Lehane and George Pelicanos, whose mass-market thrillers could be bought in airports. Their involvement in the series gave it literary cred. End quote. So, again, coming from a film background, like... What you can always say about TV criticism versus film criticism is that they really don't talk about camera movement. They mm. never talk about aesthetics in a way that you might expect a visual medium to be discussed. And instead, there's like this intense focus on the text. So can you comment on that? Like, why is it so directly linked to this novelistic tendency, let's say? Right. Well... I think, you know, there are a couple answers to that question. One, 
is simply, especially, you know, for most of its history, TV, the screen was much smaller. Mm -hmm. And so that was limiting in terms of what kinds of cinematography could be used. And, and I think that changed as the sort of big flat screen plasma TVs. Now, I, I've been told now they're called some, they're not even plasma anymore. I think they're there's something else, but they're large still. Um, they're bigger than ever before. Yeah, they're and, beautiful. Um, <laughs> so I think that in that sense, I, I, I think that changed, but I think maybe in some ways sort of the way of talking about television as, I don't know, more of a, a novel, a storytelling medium rather than, than a kind of visual meeting, medium got codified to some degree. But I also think, I don't know, why do TV critics, I, I guess some TV critics now write in a similar way about television as they do about film. But I, but I also think in some ways it's a medium with much more rules. And even the sort of most experimental television still tends to be formulaic to some degree in, in that it follows the formula of... It goes for an hour. It tells a story over 12 episodes. Even at its weirdest, it is still something being funded by a corporation. And passing through, you know, which is something I talk about in the piece, passing through vetting by, by executives at every level, from the level of the script to the final product itself. And so I think, yeah, there's, there's certainly less freedom there for a certain kind of weirdness or looseness. And, and there have been exceptions to that, but it's pretty rare. And I think because of that, when, when those exceptions do occur, the people writing about it aren't used to writing in, in, in that way, I guess. Yeah, it seems so contradictory that we do have these great, you know, giant flat screen TVs. We have, you know, smartphones in our pockets where it's like anytime you want, you can pull it out and you can watch whatever you want. But there is this loss of visual literacy almost or just a conception of that is something that is important yeah i mean i think television became a culture in which writers were valued and 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 i think that's why a lot of writers gravitated there and a culture in which directors aren't necessarily celebrated um and cinematographers certainly aren't celebrated i could name very few tv directors if i if i had to but i could name quite a few TV writers. Then showrunners who have been yeah, elevated right. to the status right. of auteur. Who, are, who, are, who, yes. who started as writers for the yep. most part and um, and ended up there. And then, you know, ended up being people like, you know, someone like David Chase, who, who really, I think, always wanted to be a film director and then became one after he finished The Sopranos, directed a film, and then I think it didn't quite go over in the way he thought. Yeah. It would, and then hasn't done anything for a really long time. I, I kind of like that movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's a small movie, you know, it's, yeah. it's, a, um, it's not a big movie in, in the way that Sopranos is a big show um, and is now, but is now making or directing another movie. But I think a lot of like when you do think about TV directors, like I think of like, I don't know, Nicole Holofcener, right, who directed mm -hmm. a bunch of episodes of Sex and the City. But again, she's not necessarily someone you think of as a particularly visual film director. She's like a talkie. She's sort of in the in the kind of Woody Allen Eric Romare. Yes. Of, of. <laughs> I, I want to talk more about TV criticism specifically and how it relates to creating mm. prestige TV because, and I, and I mean, I'll, I'll give this ludicrous example, but really this actually did happen where there was an episode of The Leftovers that was a, like a response to uh, Mads Olerseitz's writing and also the experience of his wife 
dying at a very young age because of an undetected heart ailment. And then Seitz did an interview with Damon Lindehoff, who's like one of those show's creators, which is so bizarre. But there is like this very intense exchange going on. And I mean, I think you could see it to a lesser extent with something like Girls, where like people would roast Lena Dunham and then she would like she would try and respond in the next season or something. I mean, I do think one of the cool things about TV as a medium is that it isn't a finite document and that it, you know, and I say this in the piece, like it can, it, it continues to engage with the, with the world because it, because you have to keep making it over and over again. And mm-hmm. so it, it doesn't just sort of come out in one, in one shot, whether it does that successfully is, is a different question. But, but I do think that sort of is certainly one of the things that draws people to it. I, I didn't know that story about, about the leftovers. That's crazy. I feel like I feel like my research I failed in my research to have somehow missed that but that that is insane. I also didn't watch the final season of the leftover or maybe I did. I watched like half of it, I should say. So maybe it came around. Yeah, I could just never get into it cuz I couldn't buy um I just couldn't buy Justin Theroux as like a, a police officer. Like he's like just like ripped and like way too yeah. hot. And it's like, what? Come My on. My wife really liked that aspect of the show. Yes, in fact, it has which an kept appeal. us <laughs> kept us watching it for some for some time. I mean, the thing I liked about the leftovers was it was just at least it was just really weird. Mm-hmm. And I think it it didn't always succeed, but I think that that in some ways that that is sort of like a mark of of something that's truly trying to to do something interesting or, you know, it, it, it had the dignity of its own occasional failures because it was weird and it, and it, and it shouldn't have worked. And, and it, I think it did, but, um, or maybe it didn't, I, I don't know, but at least <laughs> after every episode, I felt like I would sit there thinking about that, that question and, and couldn't quite ever get to the bottom. Of, like it was a show that almost felt like it, it would be didactic if I could figure out what exactly its message was <laughs> but it was like opaque enough that yeah that it sort of didn't have that problem well i don't know maybe read the interview and you'll be like yeah, oh it was just hitting me over the head the whole time but i <laughs> i want to ask about weird because yeah. obviously the huge precursor to prestige tv before prestige tv was a term in the united states was david lynch twin peaks david lynch mark frost's twin peaks and I feel like weirdness on television in the 90s was way more accessible than it is now because you would have MTV where there were either well-known directors or at least people who were fresh out of art school doing very experimental stuff with bands and bands were willing to do whatever they were told because it was a promotional tool. It was a way of getting their music out there and like defining a thing. And now that's all gone yeah i mean i I think well i don't know if it's all gone but i think it's it's mostly gone or it's in a different place maybe yeah in some ways because i think again it comes out of you know these market circumstances Mm -hmm. which at the time was the rise of cable yes and the rise of cable and like the rise of the home vcr and the rise of things like public access television and you know so suddenly there were a lot more i mean in the same way i think now that that things like YouTube or who knows, maybe like TikTok or something Vine, you know, yeah. are kind <laughs> of venues for a lot of weirdness, most of which is totally uninteresting or unwatchable or 
both, but but mm-hmm. maybe occasionally also a kind of venue where people can experiment and, and ultimately create things that are like totally outside of the syntax of of what's being made by corporations. And, no, absolutely. And money. Um, but yeah, I think that you know there was this moment where suddenly there's all these channels and suddenly there's this youth market right and there's this idea that okay there's the audience is fragmented so things are targeted towards specific audiences which means they're targeted to smaller groups which means that you know we can pick these groups that that we want to target things to and one of these groups happens to be young people people mm-hmm. between the ages of 18 and 49 who have expendable income who we can advertise to and they seem to like you know, whatever, this weird stuff, or or we don't know what they like, and we're corporations who are totally out of touch. And so when these people come in and say, I, we, I know what they like, they, you know, like they like this. Or, um, or, or at least I'll know, create something that will keep them coming yeah, back every week to then, figure um, out, yeah. Then we're willing to, you know, we're willing to, I don't know if it was when I was writing the piece or or at some point, I've, I've watched a lot of things. I have a, I have a one-year-old, or he's 16 months now, but during the first year of his life I watched before now he's too old to be able to just sort of me have something on while I'm he he watches things like we watch Sesame Street but but for a very long time I was just like watching movies while I sat there sort of rocking him and, and mm-hmm. trying or watching TV or what and I was a lot of this piece came out of the fact that I was able to do a lot of research while also doing childcare, which was good. What a sweet story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a whole um, you're watching uh Al Swearingen just blow people away. And yeah, <laughs> well, I couldn't really yeah. I know you couldn't get into Deadwood. Give Deadwood. it another shot. I'm telling you. Everyone's telling you. I know. The, now there's a movie. The movie sucks. It's the movie a real letdown. I, I basically watched like whatever movies were streaming for free on Amazon Prime because I was like, I'm not going to pay to rent things that I'm going to watch 10 minutes of and then have to run into the other room or whatever. Anyway, but I watched Reality Bites, which I hadn't watched in a long time. Oh, yeah. But I keep thinking about, you know, when Ben Stiller takes Winona Ryder's little film that she makes and sort of yes. makes it, MTVifies <laughs> it. <laughs> and then she gets really big into a big fight about it because she he sold her out, um, which now seems like really sort of quaint. quaint. Yeah. Yes. No, I know. I know. Right. It's like it's so funny. And I mean, you talk about this in your piece where it's like, I mean, obviously in the 90s, all of the discourse was around authenticity. 100, 100, 100 percent. And now the, 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 the discourse is a lot around like morality. Yeah. And wokeness, you know sometimes it is totally valid to criticize these things like the fact that louis ck uh released an episode of a show where he shows himself raping a woman and the critical response to it was just like oh well yeah it's pretty good episode what an interesting episode do you think he's like trolling us and then years later it's like oh okay that was actually a confession so there you know there are some times where it's taken too far other times where it's very productive to think in those terms but I really enjoyed the fact that you're you're tracing how things are talked about and how that influences what gets made because again it's part of this really symbiotic relationship between right in a way that film never was because TV is so much faster it can respond so much faster it can respond so much faster and there's so many more I mean there are advertising dollars being put into it in a different way yeah and in a way that 
can become really desperate to sort of chase <laughs> and, and also beca- can become sort of desperate to kind of make clear that they're the good guys or that they're on the, the right team in, 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 you know, what I often see as like a very transparent way in, in much yes. the same way <laughs> as like, you know, in reality bites when they're trying to sort of like take her documentary and make it all youthful and hip, but it, it, it becomes obviously sort of the work of like a, a corporation and I think what frustrates me sometimes is when that transparency, instead of sort of being seen as transparent, these are sort of being taken as like good faith efforts yeah. on on the part of places like Netflix, <laughs> that somehow they're, you know, that, that actually the corporate culture has changed and, and become more woke when, when that, is, uh, yeah. you know, is, is very obviously, you know, what they want. So the, awesome. yeah, so Netflix, the uh, corporation that releases like eight Dave Chappelle, right? Well, making I was just fun thinking of, about that yeah. when the Dave Chappelle thing and came out. That yeah. you know, because it's like they <laughs> gave that whole thing about canceling that show, and it was like they have all these values, and it wasn't you know. But then yeah, but then it's like no, they don't. They don't. No, that's what they make their money off of. They make their money off of Jerry Seinfeld driving around with his rich friends complaining about the you is know is that a netflix show the, yes it the is coffee. they bought it and they also bought seinfeld for 500 I million dollars yeah. i saw that a 30 year old tv show is that and again it's like they don't want to release numbers but they will right. release like hours watched as if that's like one thing i didn't manage to fit into the piece but i really wanted to was this thing i read about how they're basically putting new ads into old shows now and so I'm very curious if Seinfeld will have that. Um, it's got it, right? I would assume. I mean, of course. Um, I think the example was like, what? What's that Charlie Sheen sh- show? Um, two and a half. Two men. and a half men. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that they're like that. Someone was watching it. Was just like their ads. You know, in the background, the TV in the background is like showing an ad for a product that no longer or that doesn't hadn't existed yet, or like. <laughs> You know, they're like drinking sodas that like just came out in 2019. Yeah, (laughs) deep faking two and a half men. It's a good, it's a good, you know what, that's what we should be doing with technology. The other thing I think that sort of, I don't know, or at least confuses me, I wouldn't say, I I don't know, maybe I'll say it frustrates me, but but then I feel like an old man, is, um, you know, like I, I teach undergraduates and I get the sense that for the most part they don't, you know, they're, they're very woke in a kind of in a certain political sense but they also they don't sort of have any kind of anxiety about you know we're talking about the 90s they they don't have any anxiety about sort of corporations or right. or 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 selling out or or things like that and they don't see they see those things as sort of totally able to coexist in this way that i find slightly you know, disturbing. Like, I remember even just talking about in class, like talking about grunge and we're talking about Nirvana. And one of my students was like, I don't understand though. Like, don't, wouldn't you want to get money for your songs? Like, why, why wouldn't you want your songs to be in a commercial? He couldn't handle it. You know, why, why wouldn't you want to get money? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to explain. I'm sort of like, oh. But corporations have reached this zenith that they had they never were at in the nineties, despite all of this pushback, despite all and it would take a real reordering of society to make it so that someone's complaint about a corporation would seem valid. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it is the way in which everything is so completely integrated now. It's like, well, yeah, but there's nothing else. There is nothing else. Right. No. Yeah. But I will say there is YouTube, even though they're a terrible corporation. There is, there is stuff like Instagram run by a terrible corporation, but there are people on there who are definitely authentic and a lot of their appeal comes from their authenticity and they're sort of breaking apart the traditional star system. Like right. someone like Cardi B, someone like Lizzo, you're able to sort of rise through these alternative channels and like, you know, Logan Paul, like b- perhaps no one listening to this uh, knows who they are, but like children definitely do. I don't know if you saw, but I Lizzo tweeted at me this week. I had a viral tweet. It was one of the most exciting oh, yeah. things. <laughs> and it was funny because congratulations it was, oh, thank you I, everyone keeps congratulating me like as if i did something <laughs> you got her attention i got her i got a fan yeah like so, a friend of mine so wrote many to me people are tweeting at her all of the time and you got her attention i know it got but it, yeah at some like someone wrote to me and was like that was one of the best interactions with a famous person i've ever seen and i was like what is that even <laughs> What does that even mean? Again, a total restructuring. But it did of... sort of, it did sort of like, because this piece had come out like a week before and I was like, oh, I'm going to get a lot of attention on Twitter. And and then that didn't really happen. But no. then, um, you know, but then I tweeted at Lizzo and she tweeted back and I got 100,000 likes and I got all these new followers and, and, all, and I was like, oh yeah, right. That sort of reminds you what <laughs> people actually care about. Is just... Yeah. A sort of toss-off joke made by a famous person, but yes. um, but I do want to get back to what you were you were saying about experimental visual film mm-hmm. work art uh, TV because yeah I think I think you're right. There's like YouTube is a sort of place where people can just do whatever and and but but I also think like on TV and I talk about this very very little bit in the piece but probably could have talked about it a bit more is is I do think that in this kind of current moment in the in you know the peak TV moment where suddenly the demand for content is so great that things are just being funded left and right and it seems like Netflix is like very unafraid of failure in this way where they're just mm-hmm. like we're just going to throw money at all these shows we'll see what sticks like I I think also that is kind of a winning formula in the sense, particularly for comedy, which which is pretty cheap to make. And in much the same way that like in the 90s, the networks were sort of, there were like these jokes where you could, you're like a stand-up in LA and yes. someone sees you at a club and they're like, here's here's this money, make, a, make your sitcom. Like I think that that's happening again a little bit with these streaming services where there are these really, ch- these shows that are cheap to make they find a funny comedian and they kind of let them do whatever they want. And some of it's, I, I really like some of, I, I think some really funny things have, have come out. I, I really, I, I'm now watching Pamela Adlin's show, Better Things, oh, yes. which particularly as a new parent, I, I find both harrowing and comforting, mm, I guess. You're in the club. Yeah. <laughs> you're in the, in the parent club. <laughs> I'm in the club, but I really liked that show Pen15 which my wife is is a little younger than me and was the exact same age as those those girls who were in middle school when they were in middle school and and it was just like she was sort of blown away by the accuracy of 
of even just like the outfits and and everything but it's a weird show like 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 the idea to sort of play have these 30 year olds play middle school girls but do it just completely straight I mean I think that was what surprised me about it and I I was sort of resistant to watch it because I thought I felt like I'd seen sort of that joke before Mm -hmm. but then the fact that they just like do it totally straight and it's not a joke and and you forget that they're I thought was was, I liked it yeah I mean you don't mention Eastbound and Down or Righteous Gemstones Righteous Gemstones came out but yeah I'm watching that now I mean, comedy always gets really short shrift, as you rightly mentioned in your piece. But I mean, like what Danny McBride has done, kind of just playing the same guy over and over again, is truly remarkable because you don't see men like that on TV. No. At all. Like that type of masculinity. You don't see them in New York either. (laughs) (laughs) Important. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's like a real maybe like a regional appeal to that too that there's like this specificity that is absent from like whatever city the two and a half men guys live in where it's just like they're in a city yeah no and it's it's beautiful and it actually like you know david gordon green directs episodes of that show and he makes it look incredible like i remember seeing danny mcbride for the first time in that all the real girls right he kind of like steals the show from what i from what I recall. Yeah. I mean that that that's sort of what else what I what I would like to get at is just the you know, this relates to Lizzo, Cardi B, all these other things. And you see this with like anthology shows, right? Where it's maybe more about the star, like who is playing this character, than the character itself and the narrative that is going through. It's just like, oh my God, I get to see Jessica Lang again. Um, right, right. Or or Kat, Kathy Bates get in a fight with Jessica Lang about their freak show. Like that sort of stuff is, I don't know. It's to to me that is appealing. And yeah. again, it's super weird because you would never think you could do that on TV. I think it's hard for us now to remember how different it was even like twenty years ago. Yeah. And also in terms of like the kinds of subject matter being covered in mm-hmm. narrative TV, like it was just so much more wholesome. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously like The Simpsons, so much of that show was like deconstructing the Cosby family in the traditional sitcom. And then every sitcom became like The Simpsons, where it's just like the dad is just a complete fucking idiot. And then right. you're like, well, this is bad for a different reason. Oh, right. And then now The Simpsons is like unwatchable. So like everybody sort of crowds around the one thing that's working and tries to replicate it themselves. I I think the big difference now, like I think this is probably a thing that's just always happened across all mediums and all types of art. I think the difference now is that the way the current sort of culture is structured, we just go through things so much more quickly. And this is sort of what I was talking about in terms of my criticism of of these TV critics who who can be a bit triumphalist, is that I think there's a kind of need to keep finding the next thing and mm-hmm. to keep, and, and both as sort of a justification to write a TV column every week, but also as a justification to continue watching to, you know, it's like, and I think part of that comes because the, especially now, like you get the whole series, you know, on Netflix, you get the whole series at once, you watch it in like a day. And they're like, what's the next great show? Um, And in order to sort of rationalize spending another 12 hours watching something else that's, you know, maybe pretty good. Or just okay. Or just okay (laughs) or mediocre. 
yeah. we have to sort of decide that it's actually great or important. And and I think and and I guess part of what I'm trying in the piece that you sort of get at is that it used to be we sort of were looking for the next thing that was great. Now we, we really are looking for the next thing that's important or the next thing, you know, that somehow speaks to our current cultural values. It's a it's another way of elevating something that, you know, ultimately is maybe like fun and and entertaining, but also not that much more than that. Yeah. And sometimes it is, but but most of the time, I think. Right, but that's no. a very American thing to say that there is no point in pleasure because right. if you go to like France, they're like, oh yeah, it's very important to enjoy yourself. But here we have like this weird like Protestant fucked up thing yeah. where it's like you yeah. just can't. Wait, you're you're watching TV? Oh. Well, and also I think there's an elitism too to Absolutely. it. You know. Yeah. Where, you know, in order to sort of separate ourselves from kind of the riffraff of TV watchers, we have to be mm. watching the important TV. But the, even the, when we're watching the same things, even oh, yeah. if like we're watching it for different reasons or we're watching it like, you know, I like there's this Emily Nussbaum piece about Parks and Rec where she's where she's like talking about how it's like this show that is talking about local government in like this really interesting way. I'm just like. Is no, it like not. I feel like we're watching a different show. I feel like <laughs> it's just a funny show and and why can't it just be something that's pretty funny? Yeah. But I think that we're so afraid of, and we're so afraid of funny that that we have to sort of find these other kinds of justification. Nothing can just be funny or just be entertaining or just be Right. And I mean, you know. obviously there's the whole spate of comedies that were not funny. So stuff right. like Girls, stuff like Louie. Like I could, I mean, there are other ones that just died in the water before they could even be capsuled, presumably. But there is there is like an anxiety and obviously that has always been part of the culture. But then there's also because culture is kind of the only thing that, you know, liberalism really controls in society because, you know, nearly all three branches of government are controlled by conservatives. There is like this real, you know, attempt to push to the right. YouTube is definitely making that worse, but like there's um there is an anxiety of like, okay, well we have to hold on to what we have. And you know what? Leslie, whatever her face is from uh, Parks and Rec, like, yeah, she's going to talk to us and tell us why it's okay Hillary didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the weirdest things that I have ever seen people sincerely post and be like, this made me cry. People need TV. Like, it's still, it is still very much like, I need my shows. Mother needs her shows, her daytime soaps to get, to get through the grinding of life. Yeah, it's, it's very comforting. Yeah. One last thing that we could just touch on quickly is the um, sense of excess, because there are so many different streaming services by these different companies, sometimes owned by the same company, just marketed slightly differently. Do you feel like the end point of that is coming soon? Like this, this feels like, you know, Sorry, this is a magazine, but there was a real magazine bubble at the end of the 90s, and then that burst, and that was a real problem. So are we headed that way with cable TV and, like, you know, that you have to pay for the Criterion Channel and Hulu and HBO Max and all of this stuff is going to be at least as or more expensive than cable? 
Right. Yeah, you would think that it sort of has to reach a point. I mean, it all just depends on if people are buying it. Mm-hmm. And they are. So, you know, it seems like we would have reached that point already or like quite a little while ago. And yet we haven't. So so I don't really know. But I'd imagine it'll all sort of start to slowly get conglomerated into, you know. Cable. Yeah, <laughs> right. Basically, that they'll all merge in, in some way it's not, either you know in in a kind of surface way or or ultimately they'll just all be owned by the same people but it's hard to say but i also think you know this excess it's part of the sort of elevation of like everything has to be nothing can just be like a good show like it has to be like the thing because there's just so much competition and so you know it's like if my dad is trying to convince me to watch whatever show he's watching he's like no like i i know you're watching this thing but you have to <laughs> this is the thing you know <laughs> And so, and I think that, you know, it's it's kind of self-perpetuating in, in that way. You know, our attention is very important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can't, we can't fool around with it. All right. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon? I mean, the only thing we didn't talk about that's in the piece was, which maybe is interesting to talk about. And this was something I sort of wanted to write about a bit more in the piece, but couldn't really find the room for it but just the way i mean my theory that like the apprentice and our, our guilt <laughs> about having watched the apprentice is part of this anxiety okay first of all what do you mean our guilt i <laughs> never watched it <laughs> well i think our collective cultural <laughs> cultural guilt yeah no i know about I me personally watching the apprentice <laughs> and i you know i i didn't i wasn't a big watcher of the apprentice either but I, but i i watched it and like I was amused by it, and I think like its disgustingness was part of its appeal in the same way that you know the Kardashians' disgustingness is is part of yeah. its appeal. And you know, I I do think that there's sort of, and and I think same with same with a lot of the Mies Two stuff. Like we watched these things as a culture that then turned out to be have been made by these really terrible people who did really terrible things. And one mm-hmm. of those people is, is now the president. And so, you know, I think that we're understandably very anxious about sort of fostering that kind of behavior or, you know, celebrating something that might turn out to, you know, bite us in the ass in that way. I don't know. I, I wrote this piece a number of years ago about Louis C.K. in which I sort of came out as a real fan like mm-hmm. like this guy like this and I, and I really thought the show at the time was just doing really interesting things that yeah. no nothing else on tv was doing and, and I felt like I was very interested in the way that he um you know he sort of refused to be given a better time slot because he didn't want more network influence and I, and I you know I was impressed by that and, and felt like he was sort of had a kind of artistic integrity that seemed very rare, if not entirely absent. And I still think that's true. And and I thought, you know, and as I was saying before, like like about The Leftovers, I liked that the show sort of risked failure and, and felt like it was courting failure and courting a kind of discomfort in which you weren't sure if you were supposed to laugh or not, in which, mm-hmm. you know, you were laughing, but then you felt like maybe your laughter was inappropriate and and doing all these things that like I think you know exciting art can do and and then of course I don't know I reread the piece recently for the first time I think I wrote the piece in 2013 and um was sort of like oh I was wrong about everything but 
but maybe not necessarily about the show, but but um. But but this is the thing because what made because I loved Louis C.K. too, and what made that whole thing so like a betrayal and painful is that that was his whole act is being like I'm just like. I'm just laying this out here. Like, this is me. This is who I am. And you know what? You're whatever you're insecure about. I'm way more insecure about. And like, he's, he's like drawing you in, in a way that is, that's what, I mean, I don't want to call him a sociopath, but it's like, it is, it is using certain emotions in a way that is extremely manipulative. It was built into his act. And then like to find out, it's like, Oh, okay. Like it, it's it hurts. Yeah, and it's I totally bought it, and I was like, and like I came away from that show being like, this guy is the only really good father. Of course, you know, even though he because he's honest. Because but yeah, he wasn't honest, and and I think you know that the whole. I mean, have you seen I I love you, Daddy? No, I I don't think I can. I I don't think I I went to see it um, before it came before it was literally pulled off the out of theaters was. It's all about like what people say is just what people say. Gossip is just gossip. And that and it's completely not funny. The parts that are supposed to be funny are really not funny. It looks like shit. Everything about the film that should have it was very clear what he was doing and it just like made the whole thing cuz some people are like, "Oh, well, I just want the opportunity to see it." And it's like, "Buddy, if you saw it, you would feel even worse about this whole thing." Because it is, it's, it's again, it's this total manipulation, and it's like now he's going around doing random rooms and scandalizing people. It's like, well, yeah, because he's trying to find what works next. Like he's like anybody else. Hollywood doesn't have an HR department. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah, but the whole, you know, and the whole sell of that show was that this is a guy who's yeah who's telling the truth and yeah. and telling the truth in in a way that's like uncomfortable and ugly and not always beautiful yeah. but but ultimately <laughs> but yes ultimately that reflects well on him because you know and that, and you're right that is that is sort of the great manipulation yeah well lewis if you're listening really liked you on dr katz you know dr katz is my uncle Oh my God! Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Did yeah. you? Did you, wait? So, did you ever like encounter any of those comedians? Yeah, a lot. I mean, it was like you know, I I grew up down the street from him, and it, that was like my whole childhood. Oh my God! Was hanging around because they recorded at, well, most of it in his house, or and then he got an office like around the corner. But um, yeah, no, I met. <laughs> I mean, I know some more than others, but um. Like you know, Dom Irero was he was like a <gasps> yes! big figure in my childhood. Oh he was my around, god, yeah, Dom Irero and um, H. John Benjamin. Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh my god, um, those were the two. Dom Irero and my uncle were very, very close. He was like he was the first guest, I think. He was yeah, the, yeah. He was the first in, on the couch. <laughs> he was the first <laughs> one. Um, and yeah, John Benjamin and Laura Silverman. They were all they were all around back oh. in the. Uh, Back in the days. Back in the Squiggle Vision days. Yeah. Everything looked like that. <laughs> Squiggle Vision, yeah. Oh my God, that's so great. Well, I guess that's a heart. That's a that's a heartwarming note to stand on. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> I didn't, men- didn't mention it in the piece. I was like, could have you, said well, Dr. Well, Katz well, well, was well, one of the. <laughs> you're very very biased. You need to admit you're biased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 